millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From AccuWeather.com, this is Everything Under the Sun. It's our weekly podcast featuring in-depth interviews with experts from AccuWeather and from around the world. Bringing you behind-the-scenes information, stories, and news on the weather, climate change, and the outdoors. Covering topics from the worlds of science, sports, and space. It's all the information you need to weatherproof your life. And now, here's the host of Everything Under the Sun, AccuWeather meteorologist, Dean DeVore. Friends, welcome in. This is episode two of our summer series of Everything Under the Sun. It is good to be with you. 78 years ago, on June 6, 1944, more than 160,000 Allied troops landed along a 50-mile stretch of the heavily fortified French coastline to fight Nazi Germany on the beaches of Normandy, France. General Dwight D. Eisenhower called the operation a crusade in which he said, quote, we will accept nothing less than full victory, end quote. More than 5,000 ships and 13,000 aircraft supported by the D-Day invasion, and by day's end, the Allies gained a foothold in continental Europe. The cost in lives on that D-Day was high. More than 9,000 Allied soldiers were killed or wounded, but their sacrifice allowed more than 100,000 soldiers to begin the slow and hard slog across Europe to defeat Adolf Hitler's crack troops and begin turning the tide of World War II in Europe. In this edition of Everything Under the Sun, we're going to concentrate on one of the greatest forecasts ever made, certainly in military history and if not all the world. The reason D-Day was on June 6, 1944, was because of a great weather forecast. Friends, sit back and relax as we talk about Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Look, I understand staggering inflation, gas prices that seem to go up every time you pass by your local pump, the rising temperature in this country between political differences, a war going on in Europe between Russia and the Ukraine, all of those things. And add to that our constant fight with COVID-19 that seems to be dragging on with more and more cases being reported as The vaccines for other variants seem to be not doing as well with the newer variants. Friends, it's it's understandable, but still to me it was sad that earlier this week, the commemoration of what would have been the 78th anniversary of D-Day kind of fell through the cracks a little bit, but I kind of wanted to take some time here on this edition of Everything Under the Sun, our second in our summer series, to really kind of break down The most important facet, really, of that day to me was the fact that it was a brave weather forecast that got the ball rolling to be able to come on the shores of Normandy and to start the process, as I said, up front of this amazing uh, day that created the opportunity for the Allies to win the war. I want to welcome in uh, two folks who have great knowledge of this. 
and two great friends of mine to talk about this. Our former COO, recently retired from that position, but still very active here at AccuWeather, Evan Myers, who, as you know from his podcast, Student of History, and how weather and history has certainly been intertwined over the centuries. And uh, our friend from across the pond, Executive Director of the Royal Meteorological Society, Dr. Liz Bentley, Professor Bentley, uh, will be also talking about our association with our Mets and Weather Photographer of the Year in a second segment coming up. But Liz certainly a student of history and our Mets and certainly the British Met Office, a big part of that D-Day forecast. We welcome in Liz and Evan to Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. It's great to have both of you with us here as uh, we look at this. And and as we record this um, on June 7th here, uh, early in the week, coming off the celebration of the amazing accomplishments of D-Day, which, you know, with everything going on in the world, so much going on in both our country and Great Britain, it kind of got overlooked a little bit this year, to be honest, in my mind. You know, I had a father who uh, was in the Korean War and and was serving then. And so that uh, greatest generation is something that's close to my heart. And then this uh, amazing weather forecast that really changed the, the shape and history of the world is something that I'd like to spend a little time here on Everything Under the Sun to talk about. Evan, just real uh, broad overview. The the reason that the dates that originally were looked at, June 4th into 5th for the invasion, was because of the timing of the uh, the tidal situation. They were looking for kind of the lowest uh, effect of the moon in the tidal situation at that point. They felt that those were a couple of days that are the June 4th into 5th was the best of that situation as you're bringing people on shore in that invasion that was planned in the way it was planned. And so if it wasn't going to be that day, there was uh, some plans to kind of push it off for a few weeks into the latter part of June, 1920th, I think was the next available dates that they were looking at. And so it was really a tight timetable. Certainly a brave person stepped up uh, and and a lot of brave people to talk about and, and try to push that back a day to create this uh, opportunity to get a, a, a significant situation to hopefully win a major battle and turn the tide of the war. So that's the kind of the setup of why we were looking at these dates. So, and talk a little bit about, I, I think it's kind of, you know, Evan and I were talking off mic, you know, the word of fronts is something that we use so uh, easily in weather jargon these days, but that actually has kind of a war connotation the way that the Swedes, right, Evan? It was the Swedes who coined the term fronts, and it goes back to the fighting of World War II when they were looking at weather back Well, actually, it was before it was World War One, and talking or, about the, the, the front lines and uh, defining the, the differences in air masses and using a term front. And, uh, you know, we, we don't really associate it today. We don't think about it as a military term, but that's exactly where they got it from. And it really uh, resonated with people, especially after World War One, because there were such great demarcations between huge armies on the European continent. And this was a demarcation between fronts. But it's really interesting, Dean, putting this into historical perspective. You know, the words you talked about, the greatest generation and words uh, about uh, how great things were and how important things were oftentimes get bandied about without uh, a whole lot of uh, thought about how impactful they are. But in this case, what happened in D-Day 
was probably one of the 10 most important events in human history. And the weather forecast that was made was probably the most important weather forecast ever made. Now, that may sound like hyperbole, but when you think about what might have happened if they weren't able to invade when they did, uh, you know, you talked about initially the, and just to put it together pretty succinctly, the 4th of June was when they were going to go. That was the day it was going to go. But uh, British group captain uh, Stagg, who was in charge of the, the British side of making uh, the, the weather forecast, said, no, wait, uh, the American forecasters, in fact, initially said, no, we can go. But Stagg convinced Eisenhower to wait a day. And uh, they did. And they were able to invade on the next day. And there was a very short window because, as you mentioned, the next time they were looking at the tides and they wanted lower tides so they had a bigger beach so that the uh, the the things that uh, the Germans had put on the beach were more exposed and they could see where they were rather than landing in them with higher tides would have happened another couple of weeks later. And if they had waited till June 19th and 20th, there was horrendous weather in the channel. And if they had waited, they probably could not have invaded. And if then they, the next time it may have pushed off the whole invasion for a whole year. So can you imagine uh, the, the deprivation and the suffering of the folks on the European continent would have had to suffer for a whole year more if that hadn't happened. So they were able to go that day through a whole bunch of different uh, reasons that we can get into specifically. But that was that was a heroic forecast uh, that was made by Stagg and his British meteorologist on, on, on that occasion, and his ability to convince Eisenhower to wait. Uh, the Germans blew the forecast totally. They just thought, oh, the storm was going to continue. In fact, Rommel, who was in charge of the defenses, went back to Germany because he bought a pair of well, we don't know if he bought them or not, but he was able to get a pair of Parisian shoes for his mm. wife. So he has a birthday present. So he left. So they just didn't think it was going to happen at all. Let's go back to uh, it's Captain James Martin Stagg. And uh, at that time, he was with the British Meteorological Office or the Met Office, as you guys call it. It's uh, our uh, National Weather Service, but also the British Royal Navy and then the U.S. Army Air Corps, which was really had taken the meteorological lead for this country in terms of military back then. So, Liz, uh, the Met Office was was right there. And, and Stagg's got to be a heroic figure in that office and how he's viewed by uh, folks in Great Britain. Yeah, so I mean, let's take ourselves back to the 1940s and just think you not only you've got you in the middle of the war and therefore the amount of data that is freely available to move around to make these forecasts is very limited. limited but in the yeah. 1940s, you know, we didn't have satellites. We no. were very limited on the use of radar. It was used obviously for aircraft, not really for weather radar. Computer models were non-existent. So you really were limited to drawing up surface charts, hand-drawn, beautiful things, you know, drawn by uh, the skill of a forecaster. But the number of observations that were out there to draw these charts were extremely limited. And, you know, we were just saying about that, that decision, that small window of opportunity came from one observation about 200 miles west of Ireland. And Stagg had seen that pressure was rising and continued to rise over a period of a few hours and thought, there is my opportunity. I've got a transient ridge that's trying to build out in this kind of stormy sea that could give us a window of opportunity of a few hours 
on the morning of the, the 6th of June. And that, you know, that was the that was the trigger for him to kind of push for this, you know, let, let's take this opportunity to, to go on, you know, and, and get everybody ready on the 5th to move across the channel. And because the weather was so poor on the 5th, as well, the Germans had no opportunity to see, you know, the the ships that were building on the the UK side of the Channel, you know, 12 hours before they were going to go. So, so the weather helped us in a couple of ways. The bad weather helped us to kind of mask that and cover that, so they had no knowledge of us coming. And then having that opportunity of that small wind with the limited data, it is a phenomenal forecast, really. It, it really is, and it really points to me to the overall idea of pattern recognition, which here in 2022, when we have a model that comes down every hour that tells you when it's going to rain or whatever, that I think so many times, uh, maybe um, younger and less experienced forecasters kind of get caught up in that and don't think about that. I, I know from what I've learned here from working with people like Evan and Elliot Abrams and those people is to look at things that are happening upstream. I mean, if it's happening 250 miles away in Detroit or, or however many miles away today in Detroit, that weather is likely going to be coming down towards Pennsylvania and uh, where we live here in State College. So I've learned those kinds of things. Um, but was that? Do you think there was some home field advantage in the British folks knowing that pattern more than maybe the American folks? And so to give that a little bit more insight is that a key to why Stag was able to be uh, so confident in that? Yeah, I mean, and, and quite possible. I mean, again, when, when you were forecasting the weather, if you've got local knowledge as well, that can help, can't it? So being a UK forecaster, you know, knowing the lie of the land and, you know, weather systems coming in off the Atlantic affecting the UK, the funneling that you get up the English Channel, just having more knowledge of that, I'm sure was helpful to Stag in, in producing this. But but as I say, it, it, it was, we have a weather chart up in our offices here at the Royal Meteorological Society of the D-Day landings. And it's phenomenal. You can look across most of Europe. There are no weather observations coming out of Germany and a lot of the occupied areas. There's a few coming out of France from the resistance. That's quite interesting as well. And even if you look out into the Atlantic Ocean, there were very few ship observations that are coming. So, you know, you were drawing these weather charts on very limited data. And yet it's detailed. It's got, you know, the areas of low pressure, this transient ridge that I mentioned, the weather fronts that, you know, bringing the, the, the wind and the rain and the cloud. So it is really detailed on very limited information. Phenomenal. You know, Dean, another thing that's interesting, Liz uh, picked up on and, and talked about that weather observation to the west of Ireland. The one thing the Allies did have that the Germans did not was even even though there weren't that many observations, the Allies had some. They had folks in Greenland, in Iceland, certainly, and also in Labrador across uh, eastern Canada. The Germans actually, I believe, tried to set up some stations in Greenland but abandoned uh, reporting on the weather there. So the Allies had those surface stations and more ship reporting and more airplane reporting, because by that time, the uh, Allied air forces had become ascendant over the North Atlantic. And so actually, the Allies had that information that the Germans did not. And so in some ways, the Germans were just flying by the seat of their pants and didn't put the same kind of value in actual data that the Allies did. And that, that also was another thing that really helped make that kind of, of, of excellent forecast that it turned out to be. When you think about as Liz said, no satellites, the kind of uh, information that we're used to today with the density of data, uh, all that didn't exist. And so you, you talk about, as meteorologists, 
as older meteorologists, we talk about using classical techniques and hand plotting maps like I used to do and all that sort of thing. And, and inferring data uh, when, when you didn't have it is something that a lot of meteorologists grew up doing because we didn't have that density of network. But when you think about the, the call that was made based on that lack of information, but really based on what was in people's heads and their experience and their ability, uh, it's it, it's pretty awesome, and I say that as a meteorologist because you know it's 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 nice to tout other meteorologists, but it really it really was an awesome uh, an awesome situation, and it was such it was such a um a, a, a narrow window that that occurred because as I said you know a couple of weeks later the weather was just simply horrible. In fact, the Mulberry docks that the British put together and then floated across the channel in some places held, but other places were totally smashed. They couldn't even use them. Those were temporary docks to offload material and and and, and people. So it, it was a mess. It just worked out perfectly. And making that decision and making that call, again, was, you know, I think heroic to make that kind of decision. And knowing the weight, the weight of the world was on a couple of people's shoulders. We have a letter here at the Royal Met Society written by Stag to Eisenhower, just as you say, summing up, so post kind of later in June when we'd seen this stormy weather in the middle of the month that would have meant, you know, if we had delayed, we wouldn't have been able to, to, to do the crossing. Uh, and in the, hand, in the top right-hand corner, handwritten by Eisenhower, it says, thank the gods of war we went when we did. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's beautiful in a sense. You've got yeah. the, you know, the, the, the real kind of personal detail and, and almost this kind of relationship that you've got going between these weather forecasters and the commanders who are making these you know, really tough decisions. So great piece of history. Lovely to have it here. James Stagg became one of our presidents at the Royal Meteorological Societies. He's not a household name really for us in right. meteorology, no. but you know, for us at the, Meteor at the Royal Meteorological Society, you know, we, we very much recognized his, his input into, into history. Yeah, I mean, other than maybe Washington crossing the frozen Delaware, you know, that may be uh, the most impactful decision or situation that weather impacted a, a, a war uh, that we've seen. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that when uh, sometimes, and Liz and I have talked about this a couple of months ago, uh, when we first checked in about uh, the Weather Photographer of the Year contest, which we'll talk about with Liz here in a second segment coming up. But, I mean, we have a war going on between Russia and Ukraine. And certainly early on in that war, weather was a big factor. Remember how all that cold and that snow really affected uh, the Russian invasion at the beginning of it. And um, so here we go with another situation where weather was uh, certainly a big situation that, that they had to overcome and, and they did. Uh, I, I don't know. I think I would say that that was the greatest forecast of all time. I, I believe it was certainly one of the most important, if not the most important forecast of all time. Weather was the most difficult. It was certainly given the uh, given the stakes involved. There's all kinds of things that are that are important and weigh down on you as a as a meteorologist, as a weather forecaster, as all three of us know. Uh, it is interesting, you know. You talked about, and we, we don't want to put Liz in a in a defensive position here, but we all know about you know Washington crossing the Delaware. Uh, you know the 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 weather playing a part in um in in the 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 American Revolution. It played a part in so many different battles and the it, crossing the Delaware, then a few days later in the battle um, at Trenton 
the the one of the most eventful battles in in the Revolutionary War was the Battle at Saratoga, where the British Army under Borgorn had a had a had to um, surrender and actually march back into Canada because there was so much rain they got trapped they couldn't get out of get out of there. Uh, there was during the Hundred Years' War there was an incident where there was a big hailstorm uh, and the the British actually in France. Uh, they signed a temporary peace treaty because the Hundred Years' War lasted a long time. But <laughs> so many, so many cavalry got injured by this hailstorm, British cavalry, that they they couldn't keep fighting. So there's all these times in history the weather has affected battles, and uh, that it, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. And it, and it did here because it was it was about the only time that they could have gone and invaded. Uh, the European continent. And if they had waited, they might have had to wait till August or September. And by then, you know, it would have been close to winter. They really would have had to wait another year, which would have been terrible. So it was probably uh, the most weighty forecast. There was so much dependent and so many people's lives dependent on the success of that. Professor Bentley, yeah. what would you uh, say that this should teach younger people and who are entering into meteorology. Are there lessons to be learned from this brave and amazing forecast that was done? Yeah, I, I think so. And and it goes back to, I think you mentioned it earlier, Dean, you know, forecasters kind of coming into the career now very much rely on computer models. They, you know, they're, they're, they're fantastic. They're, they're very reliable. You know, they give fantastic predictions and, and almost you know, the consequence is not focusing on the observations. So you'll get straight into model data and, and just look at that and, and produce a forecast. And, and, you know, I'm of an ilk when I was a forecaster. The first thing I did when I came in the office was to draw a hand chart, mm. to look at those observations, to see what was going on, you know, where I was and in my surroundings. And it was it was the perfect way just to get up to speed with the weather. And I think that has been lost over time, that scale of drawing a chart, that, that emphasis of looking at observational data just to get yourself up to speed before you look at the model. So for me, if I could kind of turn back the clock or I could introduce something into training of meteorologists coming into a, into a career is to learn that skill of looking at the observational data and drawing a chart. It's, you know, it's, it's something that takes a little bit of time to do, but I think we definitely benefit from that skill. We have an amazing satellite now. I mean, you can see the cloud down you. It's a little cloud over you. You can actually see it on the visible these days. So I'm sure you would agree with all of that, Evan. Anything else that you could add and what we can oh, learn from this specific event in history? I, you know, I agree with what Liz said 100% about folks that are forecasting. If you podcast, if you just look at the models, uh, that it's not good enough because Progs are made by the computer models are invented by people. And so we're not perfect. And so they're not because we made them. But one way that we sometimes they're wrong to start out with. But so by looking at actually what's going on right now, you can see, well, this is going awry. No, this is on target. And I think that makes a that makes a huge difference. You know, you can get you can, you can hit the forecast sometime in the future. But if you don't get right now, right, no one's even going to believe what you have to say in the future so you got to get the here and now correct yeah. uh, because it ruins your credibility if you say well it's sunny out now and somebody looks out the window and it's raining that's that doesn't work even if nope. a more important forecast is coming down the pike they may not believe you so credibility is important and i think you know that's one of the you know the tie-ins liz talked about the personal relationship between eisenhower and the forecasters he he had that relationship and he believed Stag and the rest of the folks 
because he had come to rely on them. He came to trust them because of their previous work that they had done because it wasn't raining, or maybe most of the time, it wasn't raining when they said it was sunny. And so therefore, that trust is something that I think is important to not only new meteorologists that are just learning, but all of us, that you have to build that trust. And then once you do that, people do rely on you. And, and it's a, you're, we're giving out important information that can win battles, save lives, get people out of harm's way. And so we want them to trust us. So you know, they'll listen to the important information that we can we can give out. Evan, thanks so much for your input on this and uh, all your great information. I know this is something that uh, really interests you, Liz. Hold on. We're going to talk about Weather Photographer of the Year and where we are in that situation as AccuWeather partners with our friends at the Royal Meteorological Society. But again, I thought it was very uh, important to highlight this amazing forecast as we uh, come off of uh, commemorating uh, that amazing day, D-Day, back in June of 1944. We'll be back with more This Is Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Whether you're at home getting ready for work, packing the kids' lunch, or commuting, listen to AccuWeather Daily. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and you'll get the top trending weather story of the day every day. And welcome back to Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. A great conversation we just had with uh, Evan Myers and Dr. Liz Bentley. Professor Bentley joins us here in the second segment as we get ready to continue our celebration of the Weather Photographer of the Year contest. And we're really now starting to get towards the deadline of submission, Liz, for uh, this round of uh, Weather Photographer of the Year for 2022. Give us a kind of an update where things are in terms of that contest yeah so we're into the last three weeks now of the contest it closes on the 28th of june so just a few weeks to go so a bit of a reminder this is the seventh year that we've run the weather photographer of the year competition and the third year we've done it in association with accuweather we've broadened uh, the categories out over the years so last year we introduced the uh, mobile uh, device category and this year a subcategory you can that mobile device can be you know, for the main thing too, but there's Absolutely. a little separate uh, se yeah, uh, subsection, yeah. we, we right? We have people who are submitting, you know, photographs to both, but, you know, so and, and the quality of cameras on mobile devices is, is excellent. So you definitely, you know, can get good images. But we thought we'd have a separate category because I think people just felt previously that you had to do it with a professional camera in order sure. to be able to submit. And that's not the case. So, um, and we've also uh, the young weather photographer of the we year. Broaden that uh, age group, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So I think the youngest we've had this year has been a five-year-old who's oh, entered wow. the competition so far. So you know, great and, and a great quality. And I would say it's the quality that I've noticed this year as I start to kind of browse on the the new platform that we've been using. It's uh, called Zealous.co. I'll, I'll give you the web link uh, towards the end of this this interview. Um, but it, it's allowed us to to broaden the youth category, but it's also um, so I've been looking at the, the quality coming in and, and to me, the quality this year has been outstanding. So it's going to be a challenge for the judges. So when we've closed the competition on the 28th of June, we then move into the judging phase and we have judges, a couple of judges from AccuWeather and we have some previous winner from last year's helping us judge. Uh, we've got Joe Bradford back uh, to help us judge on the uh, mobile phone category. 
and then we'll open it up to the public vote. So when the judges have shortlisted, we will open up the shortlist to the public vote during August, and then we make an announcement of our winners in the beginning of October. Right, and then, and then there's two separate sets of winners, the winners that are adjudicated by the judges, and then, as uh, Liz said, after shortlisting, it was about 20 or so that you shortlist usually? Yeah, to that, so to it'll the, be about 25, I think, this year. 25? That will be uh, again opportunity to be judged by people. So, you know, and we've I think in the in the seven years has it ever been where the people chose the same thing as the judges, or has it always been a separate uh, where the the judges choose one and people seem to like a different one? Yeah. So usually the the public have a different view on this and uh, from the judges. So yeah, we we tend to have another winner from the public vote, which is which is always nice. So more winners, which is great. And actually, the public vote is extremely popular. So we, you know, it we tend to be yeah. 12,000 people signing up to to make their votes. And it depends. Sometimes the photographer in the shortlist might have a good following on social media, and that might help them to kind of beef up the numbers as well. So you know, there's a little bit of that going on. But yeah, so we do the judging over the summer, and then we'll open up to the public vote in August and early September, and announce the winner in October. You know, uh, certainly uh, the news out of Great Britain has been really about the Jubilee um, over the last uh, week or so, celebrating um, Queen Elizabeth's uh, reign. And um, it's been um, interesting to see that uh, the weather over there has, uh, well, it was nice for the Jubilee, right? We uh, we, we popped wow. into some decentness or did we get some mm. hefty showers and thunderstorms there towards the end? To, to be fair, I think we did really well, particularly across London, where most right. of the, the, the main events were taking place. Um, as, the, as the weekend went on, the weather deteriorated. But thankfully, the worst of the weather held off until, you know, the bigger concert and, and parades had, had moved on. And then we saw torrential rain after that. So to be fair, we were we were really fortunate with the weather. You know, it was a very mixed weekend. But for, for the parades and for the big concert that we had on Saturday night, the weather held off. We were looking at the radar and there were huge thunderstorms coming in from northern France. <laughs> and they were getting closer and closer to London as you were watching Diana Ross and Rod Stewart singing in London. And you were just waiting for you know a clap of thunder and downpour of rain but it held off so yeah the weather played ball yeah I, prince louis actually stole the show with right his uh, <laughs> yeah. i mean he's he's just a meme machine here over the last couple of weeks uh, and 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 their parents uh have been uh great about it. i saw one of their instagram posts and they were just kind of poking fun at it uh great stuff Liz, always great to talk to you. Again, June 28th, we'll close out the submission time. Um, let's give that website, and we'll also put it down in the notes section of our of our podcast here. Yeah, so the website is um, zealous.co forward slash rmets, so R-M-E-T-S, and you'll find the, the photography competition there. Zealous, Z-E-A-L-O-U-S dot co? Yeah. I won a spelling bee or two in my day, so... Liz, thanks so much for spending time. We'll get back with you when uh, we get to that situation where folks are ready to vote from the public for the shortlist to 25. Great to talk with you as always, my friend. Yeah, great to catch up, Dean. Thanks very much. So, friends, as we wrap up this podcast, we go from looking at the past, the D-Day forecast, to the present, the situation with Weather Photographer of the Year. And now let's look at the future for the weather for the upcoming weekend and week beyond. I remember last week when we were talking, we were talking about how we were in such a progressive pattern. And that means that the flow is more zonal 
Things are moving quickly from west to east. And as we go through the weekend, that continues. There's going to be a series of systems coming through, making for an unsettled weekend up on all along the eastern seaboard, all the way from New England down through the southeast in Florida. We've got showers and some rain and some thunderstorms on occasion. Northeast may be especially affected on Saturday into Saturday night. So some showers and thunderstorms Sunday. A cool time in the Northeast as uh, temperatures will be substandard. The jet stream takes a little dip down to the mid-Atlantic states. Showers and thunderstorms, Florida and back through the Gulf Coast. Now, west of that and in the middle, the interior parts of the Ohio Valley and the Southeast uh, looks dry and heat building. In fact, we're into a heat wave in Texas this weekend and early part of next week. Another diving showers and thunderstorm system will be coming through the Great Lakes and Upper Plains and also something coming into the Pacific Northwest. So uh, heat uh, in the uh, lower Four Corners region and over to the southwestern coast of uh, California, but uh, Seattle and Portland, Maine and into Boise, Idaho, we'll see some unsettled weather for the weekend. As we head into next week, well, the weather pattern continues to be progressive and quick moving. We'll also be watching for a potential development situation again as we go into um, the Gulf of Mexico and some of the areas around the Caribbean as we get into next week. So those are the weather characteristics for the upcoming weekend and week beyond. Make sure that you're weatherproofing your life every moment that you can. I'm going to be weatherproofing my life, and you've noticed maybe we've dropped this podcast a little earlier than we do normally in the week on a Thursday because I'm headed down to Puerto Rico with uh, my partner, Joel, to see his family. We haven't been there since the start of the pandemic, so it's been about three years. We're going to look forward to visiting them and me celebrating my birthday on the beach, which is always something I enjoy doing in early June. We'll be back next week to talk about weather and health, health-borne illness from Heat and extreme heat, and especially with the prospect of us not having uh, equal access to energy this week, uh, this summer, it looks like there are going to be uh, projected brownouts and even blackout situations because of unprecedented demand for energy as the long, hot summer continues, especially in the West, Midwest, and the Great Plains. For all of us with AccuWeather and our hundreds of team members working across the world to keep your Life Weatherproof. We'll talk to you next week, episode three of our summer series. Thanks to our guests, Evan Myers and Liz Bentley, and to our executive producers, Ken Prell and Andrew Robb. Many thanks as well. I'm Dean DeVore. We'll talk to you episode three next week. This is Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review Everything Under the Sun on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And of course, if you have an idea for a future podcast, just email us at accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.